This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, we're going to talk about John Jones beefing with Chael Sonnen and what that actually tells us about the two and then the larger scenario. Plus, we're going to have a discussion about John Jones potentially fighting Francis Ngannou. Do you like it? Do you not? And we'll talk to Miguel Baeza after his big win over Matt Brown from Saturday's UFC on ESPN event. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation, Channel 156 at 1 p.m. East Coast time. Don't forget about the mailbag, Show at gmail.com. I want to start the show in a, oh, let me just give you the heads up on here. So tomorrow will be the mailbag, Show at gmail.com. Get them in now. No time to wait. Do it now, Show at gmail.com. The Twitter account at MMA on SiriusXM, and then on Instagram, SiriusXM Fight Nation. Yeah? All right. Very good. Uh, okay. You know what's amazing? We're going to talk in the second hour about this idea that gets floating around. Not, not even an idea, really. It, it appears to be something that, at least on social media, John Jones is campaigning for. Later in the show, we're going to talk about John Jones potentially fighting Francis Ngannou. Now, that's not where I'm going to start, but I'm sort of starting there in a roundabout kind of way, which is to say the following. Um, I love that fight, and I love virtually everything about that fight, and I will tell you why a little bit later. But what's kind of funny about sharing my enthusiasm is I have to have a mea culpa before I can get to it. I can't even tell you why I like it right now. I, I will do that later, but right now, I, I have to be honest, isn't it amazing that nobody is bringing up <laughs> the fact that John Jones had this arrest with a gun in his car during a pandemic and a quarantine, and he was drunk behind the wheel of an automobile? Understand, he pled guilty, so this is not me saying... Um, Oh, he's guilty and we're still awaiting trial and, you know, guilty until proven innocent or rather, excuse me, quite the opposite, innocent until proven guilty. It's none of that. He has already copped to the charges. Now, if you missed what I said during that episode of his life, which was very recent, I think, what, last month? I had said I I did not want to overly judge him. I mean, it, it seems pretty clear to me that the guy needed help. And not condemnation, even though it feels tempting to do that. Um, and some people agree with that. Some people don't. That's fine. That's life. But it is amazing to me that in thinking about the ramifications of it and people talking about how substance abuse is so serious, it all just went away. He didn't have to do a lengthy wait time between a trial. He didn't have to serve any time in jail in part because of COVID concerns. But isn't that amazing that here we are, not even a month later, and the only thing anyone cares about is John Jones versus Francis Ngannou or him rematching somebody else from light heavyweight or taking on Jan Blachowicz. In other words, whatever else he could do to entertain us and every other consideration has been utterly erased from our consciousness. I find it amazing. In fact, in even thinking about why I liked John versus Francis, 
I had to have a moment where I stopped myself and I said, wait a second, wasn't I just the guy that a month ago said, I hope this dude gets help? Yeah, I was. And I am. But the reality is, you know, if he's got this compartmentalized ability to party too hard and whatever else you want to say goes wrong with that and then turn it around and then go train and beat everyone, which is exactly what he had been doing for, by his own admission, fairly lengthy portions of his career, what's to stop him now? You know, do I feel a moral, what's the word? Do I feel a moral hang-up about the situation? I mean, it's like it's like MMA. It's like I, you know, I felt a moral hang-up about all of sports coming back in April, while you know the bodies were still piling up and new cases were being added without you know additional testing concerns, right? So um, deaths were piling up, cases were being added up, and people wanted to rush back to sports, you know. And then I was the odd man out looking in on the sport where everyone kind of disagreed. You know, this is just the nature of the sport. It's like, dude, every time these fighters compete, they don't make the money they're supposed to. The, the, the money they're supposed to. Every single time. Literally every single time they collect a check, it's a fraction of what it should be. Literally every single time. Right? So it's like having moral hangups about the whole thing almost never precludes you from watching. It's a weird little thing that's happening. You know, like all of a sudden the discussion just shifts. It's all intensely focused on all his wrongdoing and all of his shortcomings and missteps and, you know, concern trolling from some. And then it, in the blink of an eye, it just turns into something else. Isn't that wild? I find it crazy to be honest with you, except there is one person who (laughs) won't let you forget, who will remind you until the day you die about this gentleman's shortcomings. And his name is Chael P. Sonnen. <laughs> this was just uh, very on brand for Chael. See, here's how I go through commentary. And I've made this point about Chael before. I envy the guy, to be quite candid with you. I go through commentary with the following rule. I'm only going to say something that I could defend if I had to say it to your face. Now, I'm not going to lie either. So I'm going to balance those two. I'm going to tell you the truth but I'm going to do it in a way where I had to do it if you were right in front of me. Very easy rule to keep yourself, you know, not out of trouble because no matter what, people will come after you as you've seen, but to sleep to sleep at night knowing you did what you could kind of a thing. Chael didn't give a crap about any of that. He does not care at all. So he had made a video about Francis and John fighting. I don't know what the contents of it were, but I saw that he had made one. And he's made several you know, snide remarks about John. He did a submission radio interview where he had gone after him. And, uh, you know, he, he sort of consistently harps on it. But I guess he had made a recent one. So John took to Twitter. And John says, who is this? He's a has-been with now man boobs making money off of YouTube, getting hit, talking about John Jones. And then he follows it up with another one saying, wow, it took you guys 25 seconds to figure out. Now, Chael does not actually at John Jones in any of these, but he went on a tirade. Here is what he says. I'll just go through these. Guy, you're the only fighter in UFC history with more mugshots than Al Capone, more wrecks than Evil Knievel, more gunshots than SEAL Team 6, 
more booze than David Crosby with Ernest Hemingway sitting on his shoulders. You have permanent handcuff creases in your wrists. All of these are different tweets. You've handed over more belts and shoelaces than a convention of haberdashers. That is pretty clever. The only fighter who gets asked for more pics from police photographers than starstruck fans. But on that rare occasion, when a fan asks for a pic, do you give them the side view out of habit? If you ever drove sober, the networks would cover it live with helicopters. Oh, last thing, everybody knows you beat this latest case by ratting. When they offered me a deal, I hard-rocked, Jack. You ratted out your dealers, got put in Punk City, then shoved out the back door. Last one, I did my bid in Gen Pop on a weight pile with the shot callers. The only thing you lifted was your cell phone to give up your contacts. Sort of, you know, overly dramatizing this whole thing, to be quite candid with you. It is amazing to me that the only thing left out of what has happened to John and the concern trolling that has gone into it and just the native actual real concern that was genuinely a part of it, it has faded away and the only person beating that horse merely as a retali- retaliatory tactic is Chael Sonnen. That's it, dude. It has been erased from the rest of the world. MMA is the strangest place on earth where a real event with real consequences goes away in favor of a professional indulgence, which is what Jones versus Nganu is, to most of us anyway, and I'm not against it, and the only person who reminds us of sort of the grander picture of malfeasance, and at least in this case, what do you want to call it, error-prone behavior, is a guy just doing it as a function of having a grudge, which, you know, I'm not against him retaliating if he feels he's been attacked, I'm not suggesting otherwise, I'm merely saying even when it's used, it's not used in a way where we're constructively trying to have a conversation. MMA is the strangest place on earth. The, the longer I spend time in this community, two things dawn on me. One, I don't fit in. And two, <laughs> as crazy as I think it is, it routinely gets crazier as time goes on. Up is down, left is right, what matters doesn't, and what doesn't matters. And that is the world in which we live. And with that context laid out, later in the show, we will have a conversation about Jones and Ganu. But I just want to start the show today with a reminder about the position we're in. I did not want to have a matchmaking conversation without a relevant, what do you want to call it, reminder of what we're ignoring, except for the person who's ignoring it, but for the reasons that he is. It's a, it's a sport where nothing makes sense. And if you try to make sense of it, you will go crazy. This is Frank Isola. While the games are on hold and we're all going through a lot right now, the starting lineup is still talking hoops on NBA Radio. Jeff Van Gundy joins us. After a playoff series, win or lose, did you always go down and shake the other coach's hand? Coach Riley, we, we never shook hands. The players didn't either. True sportsmanship is how you play the game. It's not after the game do you shake somebody's hand or not. Hear the show weekday morning starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on NBA Radio, Sirius 207, XM86, and anytime on demand with the Sirius XMF. This gentleman had a back-and-forth affair with Matt Brown, but he came out the victor and did so in emphatic fashion. Uh, first time, I think, getting him on the show It is the one and only Miguel Baeza. Hi, Miguel. How are you? How are you doing? Good to be here. 
Yeah, Miguel, happy to get you on the show. First things first, I think it's your first time on the show. Number one, you got to yeah, tell me what the nickname. Yeah, Caramel Thunder. Who, who gave that to you? That's a great nickname. So it started off kind of as a joke that it just, it, it, it's a joke that stuck, honestly. I was a fighting amateur when I was, uh, I think, like 19 years old. And uh, uh, one of the fights, they, uh, one of the interviewers kind of asked me beforehand to fight if I had a nickname and there was like nicknames being thrown around for me, just really dumb ones that never really stuck or didn't fit. And, uh, so I told him I had no nickname is Miguel Baeza. And, uh, I, I left it at that later on, you know, the night goes on, my fights up the interviewer, I'm sorry, no, the announcer announced me as Miguel. And I couldn't really understand what he said. It was, uh, kind of went by went in one ear, went out the other, like blah, blah, blah. Baeza. That's all I kind of heard. I was like, I don't know what he said, but whatever. I got a fight going on. I don't really care. After the fight, I win. He, uh, the ref raises my hand. Uh, and after says it again, Miguel. And then I kind of made it out this time. Caramel Thunder Baeza. And uh, yeah, I was confusion. I just look at my corner. I'm like, is this guy calling me Caramel Thunder? And uh, they're literally shrugging like at me. Like, I don't know what he's saying. And then before I step out of the cage, everybody's starting to chant Caramel Thunder, and everybody just finds it funny. My, my corner, my friends and family that were there, they thought it was hilarious. And then they start calling me Caramel Thunder. And after that, that's it. That was Caramel Thunder. So, so the ring announcer just made it up? So it, it's like a legend. Like nobody knows who made that name up, really, to this day. Uh-huh. Nobody really knows who decided to give me that nickname. And it's just it, it, they thought it was hilarious and it just stuck. Now I can't get rid of the name. And it got to the point where, you know, the more you fight it, the more it, like the stronger it stuck. So I just kind of accepted it. I'm Caramel Thunder. That's who I am now, I guess. <laughs> well, bro, I'll tell you what, among your win, uh, it was another reason what it, it, it caught my attention on Saturday. And so let's focus on that here for just a second, the fight with Matt Brown. Um, what were you expecting from him from a game plan standpoint? What were you anticipating? Uh, you know, we, well, Matt Bryan has what, over 20 fights in the UFC. So we kind of understood what he was going to bring and how he was going to fight. And we lo- we watched his last two fights with Ben Saunders and Diego Sanchez. And we were kind of just breaking that down. We know he's going to come forward. He was going to implement his will. He's a veteran. He's, you know, he has a ton of experience, a lot more than I do. I, I, I've, that was my ninth fight as a pro. That was what his 45th or something like that something close to that. And, uh, yeah. I knew he was going to try to implement his, you know, his game plan, his, try to basically will the fight his way. And um, he, he did exactly what we thought. He's going to come forward, be aggressive, try to get those elbows off, try to, you know, um, the fight in his range and make me uncomfortable, make me back up. All right. So you ultimately won. We'll talk about why in just a moment. But he did have at least a brief moment of success where he rocked you. What happened from your perspective? Oh uh, yeah, I made a I made a, a mental error. I made a, a mistake that my coaches always tell me not to do, and that was going to that shoulder roll. And it was something that I made a decision of in the middle of the fight that kind of got away from the game plan. And uh, that decision was basically to kind of stand in front of Matt Brown a little more. I wanted to kind of be in his face a bit more. We were we had plans to kind of move, you know, use our, use our feet, kind of dance a little more, pick our shots, but the fight happened and then I just made that mental, you know, uh, that mental decision to stay in Matt Brown's face a little longer than, uh, maybe my coaches would have liked and try to fight, uh, from there. And when he came forward, he, uh, you know, he, I guess he kind of got me by surprise and I went to that shoulder roll, which was the, 
the mistake that I made, and I also made another mistake where I went straight back into the fence, so I had nowhere to go, and then he caught me with that right hand over the top. Hmm. Uh, however, the tide would eventually turn, and you caught him with a beautiful uh, finish at 18 seconds into the second round. How'd you set that one up? Walk me through that. So after uh, that that initial scare, you know, um, we I got my seat back underneath me. I was, uh, you know, I brought the fight the fight back to me. I went back to the game plan of what you know what we had uh, in mind, and uh, I was able to kind of just kind of clear my head and see a little bit of what he was doing, you know, when he was coming forward with his left hook. So uh, I knew I was a little bit faster, and as soon as I saw him take that step, I took I threw that that uh, that rear kick to the calf, took a step back, getting ready for him to step forward, and then when he did, I threw my left hook and caught him first. Hmm. That was unbelievable. Dropped him and then finished him off there. Uh, Miguel Baeza joins us here on the Luke Thomas Show. You have to be very happy with this, right, Miguel? Because, sure, everybody wants a flawless performance, but as you mentioned, you're still in the single digits in terms of the number of pro fights you have. Number one, you beat a known commodity. Number two, um, you got a finish in doing so, a thrilling one at that. And three, you got a little bit of a teachable moment along the way to carry you forward into your future fights. I'm guessing this must have been not exactly how you played it out, but you got to be really thrilled with this, right? Yeah. I mean, if, uh, if, if you were, you know, like my coaches know me and they know I am, my friends know me and everything like that. They know after the fight, I was a little, um, I wasn't bummed out. I was happy, but I, w- I expected uh, a better performance out of myself. So at the time I was just kind of harping on the fact that I got caught with that shot. I was like, Oh man, you know? And then, you know, it's one of the, it's, it's, uh, how do you call it? COVID-19 has kind of made, uh, these fights, like the only thing that's happening right now. So I knew a ton of people were watching and I got caught and, you know, I got, you know, I, I, I think Michael Bisbing said something about me doing a TikTok dance. I was like, Oh my God, you know, like <laughs> my first big, you know, like my opportunity in, in front of the, you know, in front of the world and, uh, I'm out here doing dances, you know? So I was, uh, I was, it was like a, a roller coaster, you know, like I'm glad I won. And then, you know, and uh, I got to finish against Matt Brown. And then I just like went quickly to the, like, Oh no, you know, like I wonder if that's going to be on ESPN, me doing this little dance or, you know, right. so it was up and down, but I was, I was definitely happy for sure. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing I'll tell you, I, you know, you get a finish like that over a guy like that. And then you show resiliency when he tries to put it on you those are all good things. Dude, MMA, man, I mean, you know this, you're a pro fighter, but I've been covering the sport for 15 years. Dude, all the best fighters, somebody eventually sticks it to them. The question is what they do when that happens. And based on what we see here, there's lots of good to be happy about. Yeah, the TikTok dance thing, that ain't great. But everything else, man, you came out looking pretty good from this one, I got to tell you. Thank you, sir. Uh, you know, I, 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 it's a win, and I'm and I'm very happy, again, I guess the a tough vet, so I'm not complaining. I just know I got there's a lot more work for me to do. Fair enough. Now let's talk about uh, MMA Masters. This is one of those camps. Uh, if you know MMA, you know how good they are. But I still feel like they don't quite have the same national profile that they should relative to the quality that they produce. How did you end up with them? Like, what what, what was the journey that brought you to them? Well, I'm, a, I'm originally from South Florida, and uh, I was I started training uh, when I was 15 years old. And it was a smaller gym, uh, but it opened up across the street for me. I actually tried to uh, try to you know these uh, bigger gyms like ATT. Like those when I first started, those were the, the names, you know, the ATTs, and I really wanted to uh, get involved with that team. But at the time, there was only uh, Coconut Creek, which is about 45 minutes from my house, and uh, 
I didn't have a car. I needed my parents to drive me. I needed to take the bus. And it just took way too long for me to get out there and just couldn't afford it at the time. So luck have it, luck would have it that uh, a small gym would open across the street from uh, my house I could just walk to, and that's how I got started. And uh, that gym was, was actually FFA, Freestyle Fighting Academy, down in Miami. And uh, as time went on, my, co- my original coach that was there, he left. I followed him. He, had his, he started his own gym. And, uh, and that became Rock MMA. And then uh, it just kind of got to the point where I was starting to w- have more success, and I just didn't have the, the bodies that I needed. So uh, my coach just told me, look, if you're going to go anywhere, go to MMA Masters. That's where he was training at the time. So, you know, and I had a few friends there already. Some uh, other local pros were there, some good guys, especially at my weight class at 170. And I decided to head over there and um, listen to my coach. And uh, that's, that's pretty much it. I, you know, the rest is history. I've been, I've been, I've been with them now since before the uh, Contender Series, and everything's been going well. We, they got guys like Ricardo Lamas, uh, Cesar Mutante, you know, Nico Price is uh, over there with me sometimes training. You know, we get good work in, so it's been great. Yeah, everything is going smoothly for you. For folks who may not know, you're undefeated as a pro, I think, what, 9-0, and and undefeated as an amateur as well. Did you wrestle in high school? Did you have any combative background prior to MMA? So before I started fighting MMA, uh, my uncle was an amateur boxer, and he got me into uh, into fighting. You know, he, that was like a, his thing, and I wanted to box until I saw the first Ultimate Fighter, and then I decided I wanted to do that. And me and just a bunch of kids would literally, like, try to practice all the moves that we learned from the UFC that we saw or YouTube or try to imitate it. And we just, we got a, one of us got like a bag for their birthday. We set it up behind one of the, like one of the kids backyard. And that's, that's how we started to kind of like messing around, you know, trying our best, to like for a, a couple of 13 and 14 year olds trying to, you know, figure out MMA. Then uh, I got into that gym, like I was telling you about earlier. And then I, uh, then I got into wrestling to get better at martial arts. At mixed martial arts. So it kind of went the opposite for me. Instead of getting into wrestling and then doing MMA, I did MMA and then started, uh, then started wrestling in high school. What, what do you consider your specialty? And I know what everyone says. Oh, I'm a modern fighter. I'm like well-rounded. But like, is there a particular kind of training that you prefer more? Is there some sort of like identity that you have with any one particular uh, martial art and perhaps more than the others? Uh, I, I'm about to sound real generic then because I really do uh, enjoy kind of everything. You know, I I like uh, I love wrestling. I love jujitsu. I love boxing, kickboxing, Muay Thai. I feel like they all kind of uh, have their own identity and kind of bring their own war. Like they bring their own kind of like you know how they say wrestling. Yeah, like those guys have great will, and then boxers have these great fight. And I feel like that's very true. They all have these things that they bring to a mixed martial artist that uh, just make them that much better. Uh, I guess if I were to say I enjoy one more than the other, and it's going to be a close one, I guess it would be boxing just because it's something that uh, I feel like it's in my blood. You know, my my uncle, my heritage, it's just a, it's a, it's a big thing. So I would say boxing, I guess I enjoy the most. But again, it's very slight. You know, you ha- right up there too. Do you have a favorite boxer? Of all time or currently? Either. Um, growing up, it was definitely, yeah, it was Tito Trinidad for sure. Just because when, uh, he fought, it was, a uh, it was an event. I had family, we got the pay-per-view. It was a, a huge party. So watching him do his thing was like a, like a big deal. Um, yeah, I would get to say probably Tito. There's a few others though, you know, 
that are, that represented Puerto Rico as well, like uh, Miguel Cotto and everything. So, but I would say I guess Tito's the, the, the guy. Fair enough. Uh, before I let you go here, so I'm guessing you're Puerto Rican, right? If you like a Tito Trinidad and a Miguel Cotto, that's your guy. Yes, um, so l- let me ask you then, who in the uh, UFC, I'm not going to say who do you model your game after. That's that's not the c- correct question. But for someone as young as you, there must be some someone in the UFC or maybe several who you watch and you say, I, I, you're not going to copy them, but their game just really impresses you. How they do things and the particular way in which they do things and the skills they demonstrate along the way. Who fits that profile for you? Well, my favorite fighter, like uh, when I got in MMA, like around that, that, that younger age, the guy that I, I thought was uh, like a total bad. I mean, I don't, I don't mean to curse, I'm sorry, but a total badass was uh, Randy Couture. I thought he was... Uh, I thought he was the man, you know, like I, I loved everything he did. I thought he was like uh, this little guy that went up the heavyweight to, to the heavyweight division. He was older and he was still manhandling these guys. So I thought he was awesome. But when it comes to the current guys, uh, I don't know. A lot of people compare me, I guess, or they've been made some comparisons, uh, comparisons with like a George Masvidal type, I guess, just because our frames are, I guess, similar, you know, tall, kind of lanky build. And uh, I do like to, he does have a very good uh, clean boxing technique. So I guess that's where that kind of um, comparison comes or they get, they draw that comparison from. Interesting. Yeah. Some South Florida dudes, some Cubans and some Puerto Ricans, they will put hands on you. They are uh, fighting communities. (laughs) Um, Well, Hey, Miguel, I got to tell you, you, you're just, you really stood out on Saturday. Unbelievable win. And it caught my attention, and uh, I'm excited to see more. In terms of getting back out there, you got dropped. I'm not sure what the commission did for suspension, but like, do you have a plan for the rest of the year? Like, what you want to do in terms of activity? So, we, we, I mean, Florida has relaxed COVID social distancing standards, but still, it's all a little weird. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little weird. I mean, even taking this fight was a little off, is because uh, there's only a certain amount of people allowed in the gym, and then. You know, so a lot of gyms were closed, but we figured it out and everything kind of turned, turned out great. But uh, as far as then uh, plans going forward now, I just, uh, I, small little things I got to take care of just medically, but I'll be cleared. I think I'll be fine. Uh, I'm just going to try to work hard, get better every day, and uh, whatever the UFC throws at me, I'll be willing to take. So, well, it's really I love your. Them. Love your attitude, man. Love your game. You did great. Uh, you know, I don't know if you're on TikTok, but don't worry. If you hadn't brought it up, I wouldn't have even said anything. I was just focused on your KO because it was it was fantastic. So congratulations on your win. Get healthy, whatever you may need to do there, and can't wait to see you perform again. Now that was that was super solid from you on Saturday. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Thomas, for having me. Anthony Smith on MMA Tonight. Is this now the moment where everyone's looking at Justin Gaethje as maybe the best lightweight on planet Earth? Justin Gaethje is fundamentally better than Tony Ferguson, so I'm not sure if they ran that back, if it would look much different. Maybe that was the Gaethje effect. Like, maybe it's not Tony. Maybe he didn't have an off night, and Justin Gaethje's just good at making people look bad. At this point, there's a strong argument to be made that Justin may be the best 155-pounder on the planet. Tuesday through Thursday, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation. Do you want to see the next fight at heavyweight made? Because it looks like they're going to try to do DC versus Steep A3, but it may take some time. You know, who, who, who just knows what the timeline is for that? But John Jones is out there on social media chirping, chirping about fighting Francis Ngannou up in his mentions the whole nine yards. Francis had an 18 second fight and 
you know, he was looking for some kind of respect. To me, this is the ultimate. I mean, how do you not make this fight? How do you not make John Jones versus Francis Ngannou? If you set up a series of criteria under which you would normally make fights, particularly ones of of, uh, this potential consequence, it meets all of the criteria. (laughs) Right, let's go through it here. Ready? Number one, you have a bit of a log jam at the top of the division. If the reigning light heavyweight champ, who is essentially undefeated, who has a win over the previous champion up there in Daniel Cormier, could be soon to be champ again, uh, wants to jump up and he has to fight a contender, he has to fight the number one contender, that would be Francis. So this would be for a de facto number one contender. To me, you could put an interim belt around that one so that if John Jones wins, you have a unification with either Stipe or DC or... Same thing for Francis, but either way, you get a title unification after the winner of this bout ultimately fights the one at heavyweight. If you don't want to do that, which I think is stupid because it gets the winner of this bout more money on the subsequent time, surely you could all agree it's for the number one contender at heavyweight, right? Francis has beaten just about everyone else around him that he could. Uh, Yes, John Jones has literally no resume at heavyweight, but he is, again, for all intents and purposes, undefeated at 205 and is the reigning champion. If that guy moves up, either he gets a title shot right away or he gets the number one contender. This is how that goes. So one, it helps alleviate a bit of the log jam because now you have a, this sort of title picture moving along through the interim uh, system while we figure out what happens with DC and Stipe. Okay. So that's the first part about it. Second part about it, let's talk about what it does for Francis Ngannou. This guy is looking for respect. This guy is looking for a big payday. If he beats John, he gets the interim title. He'll get that bigger payday. Second of all, you want to talk about validity. You want to talk about validity. Be the first guy to beat truly, not the Matt, you know, uh, Hamill style, but to truly beat John Jones. And if, and if Francis wins in the way that Francis typically wins... Yeah, uh, you're talking about a guy, I mean, you would have laid out John Jones to get there. That is about as much validation outside of a gigantic paycheck as you're going to get. And if you do that, gigantic paychecks are almost certainly in your future. Okay, so there is so much to gain. And now, yes, you are risking something. If you lose, you lost to the guy one weight class down. But look at how everyone else he has beaten around him. He is never that far Never that far. I mean, the last four fights, less than three minutes, and he's KO'd all of them. I think all of them inside a round. He is never that far from contention. Francis is always right back in it, okay? That that ability to hit the light switch on people is game-changing, okay? So it's a risk. There's a risk, but I don't think it's that consequential to him. The reward, significant. Same thing goes for John Jones. Yes, getting flatlined by Francis that would be bad, but it would be up a weight class. He would still have his own weight class to retreat to. And I'm not saying that doesn't, that doesn't confer problems. It does. There's, there's no way to get out of this if you lose completely unscathed in all likelihood, especially, again, if Francis lays you out. However, it's not as if it takes away his belt at 205. It's not as if he can't go back down there and continue to have other big fights for him that have drama and intrigue. And at that point, the stakes would be raised given that Francis would do that. So there's a risk there, but there's still a bit of a safety net involved. Plus, let's talk about the flip side. If John Jones wins that fight, dude, are you kidding me? John Jones goes up there and does to 
Francis, let's assuming he controls him and takes him down and blah, blah, blah. TKOs him, takes his back, whatever. Outstrikes him on the feet. Not so much with power, but, you know, just consistency and volume and whatever the way John Jones has been winning um, in, in, in different scenarios. Less so the last few, but let's say Gustafson style or rematch with DC. Yeah, dude, that would be a, I mean, the most dramatic of wins. Everybody has waited for this guy to jump up to heavyweight to do what he was going to do. And the big fish at the time that we thought it could have happened was Cain Velasquez. And that is now, you know, a dream deferred. But there is plenty of talent up there to challenge him. There's plenty of hills to climb, mountains really. And if he goes up there and beats Francis, given the run that he's on and the reformation that he has experienced, and he would be giving up weight and punching power, that would be, I mean, he already had validation, but we're talking about GOAT status, even if he didn't already have that. It would be such, you know, it would seal the deal pretty pretty closely, right? So there's that. Then you have to ask yourself how competitive the fight is. I would argue pretty competitive, very competitive. On the Francis end of things, still a lot of unknowns. We don't really know how good his cardio is. His coaches tell me it's dramatically improved. Um, but let's assume that they're right. So we have good cardio. We've got just absolute, the best and biggest power in MMA in terms of what Francis can do. But there are some wrestling liabilities there. So on the one hand, he might have improved cardio. Maybe his takedown defense is good. We know if he puts hands on you, it's a problem. On the other hand, while John may not have those physical tools that Francis has, I keep telling folks this, John has not only elite defense, John has elite defense among the elite. Uh, two out of every three strikes thrown his way don't connect. And the, even the ones that do, he often rolls with them or they're kind of some halfway blocked. Uh, he has a nearly 100% takedown defense. He is hard to take down. He is hard to control. He is hard to reach. He has a longer reach than Francis. He is very hard to meaningfully hurt in a fight. And even when he has been hit sometimes, he has shown a pretty good chin. He still has ostensibly some of that wrestling prowess. Now, I think his offense has deteriorated in recent years, but as you can see, he is still a force to be reckoned with, even in some of these closer fights like he had with Santos and like he had with Dominic Reyes. Um, also, are these guys available? That is That sounds kind of weird, like, okay, well... Is that the most important criteria? This is often how fights are going to get made. Hey, we would, this is our wish list, but to what extent are these two um, really uh, available right now? Are they injured? Are they, are they between camps? Do they have a suspension? What, what's the scenario? Dude, they're available right now. They're available right now, at least to sign, to schedule out. So let me see if I understand this. It's a competitive bout with two people who are ready. It has stakes for the division. It has plenty of upside plus safety net for both competitors. Uh, and it could eventually set up a title unification bout, depending on the circumstances, that would be beyond historic in nature. Why would you not make this fight? And people who want to say it's not competitive, oh, I believe in Big Francis. Look, I'm not telling you Big Francis can't win. His, his, his power is, it's indescribably good. On the other hand, John Jones has the highest fight IQ, basically, of, of just about any fighter I've ever seen in MMA. Again, I don't think his offense is what it once was, and that matters going up a weight class. But if you're a Francis fan, that should give you some reason to think his, his chances are good. And on the John Jones end, I still think a guy that's hard to hurt, who can make smart decisions, who is still uh, on the better side of between 30 and 40, 
is going to be a tough customer. I think he's a very, very tough customer. Dude, this fight is the easiest call in the world to make. How do we not make it? Now, apparently, we have some audio. We have we had uh, we spoke to Overeem yesterday, um, and we have Dana talking about it as well. First things first, let me hear what Dana had to say about it, please. Uh, yeah, I mean, anything's possible. I mean, I don't, I don't know if... I don't know if those guys really want that fight, you know what I mean? Let me tell you this, and I'm not saying this is the case with these two. You see a lot of talk on online and whatever it might be, but actually making fights is a whole nother ballgame. Right. Well, here's the deal. John probably wants to get paid for it, and I would argue that at least in terms of his professional accomplishments, he has certainly earned that. We could talk about his indiscretions outside of the cage in a, in a separate video, which we started the show talking about it in a separate segment. Here, here's all I'm saying right now. John is absolutely right to ask for more money. The only reason why this fight would not be made is just because of people being miserly. Big Francis is looking for a payday and respect. Big John is, or, or John Jones anyway, is looking for, I mean, he's probably got a lot of respect as a professional competitor, but you know, a big payday and, and this opportunity at doing something kind of special. It is laid out there in front of them. This is the easiest call in the world to make if you're the UFC. Overeem spoke about it on yesterday's show. He does not think it is all that likely. Let me hear what he had to say. Yeah, that would be awesome, to be honest. Um, I do not see John Jones accepting that 5 one, two, three. You know, saying it is one, but actually doing it is an entirely different but on the other hand listen everybody wants to see it right I, I i just don't like people who talk a lot and then don't follow through so i actually do want to see that fight but i think uh, that is pretty far from uh, materializing to be honest all right well his skepticism notwithstanding i don't know what the likelihood is i just know what the raw material is this is an easy call make this fight Pay them, I'm not saying whatever they want, but certainly come to some kind of an agreement with these two. This is, this is the time to make it right now. Right now is the time to make it. And I know I wanted Dominic Reyes to get a rematch. Um, I, don't, I don't know how to na navigate the two of these. This is the problem where if you don't immediately do it, the fight game just kind of moves on and new possibilities create themselves. And here, here we are with this very same kind of scenario. It's unfortunate. I'm not sure what to say about it, except I don't know how you walk away from something like this. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.